Reuniting after the tragic death of their friend, four college pals set to hike through the Scandinavian wilderness. A wrong turn leads them into the mysterious forests of a Norse legend, where an ancient evil exists and stalks them every turn. another fantastic episode of Boo Review, where we talk about pretty much everything that's cryptid and lore, but then we finish it off with a movie review that could be positive or negative. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm interested today, and we have a uh, creepypasta today that's hopefully uh, way better than last, about the dentures. That was kind of stupid, but we'll get further than that in a few. But we're going to be talking about uh, Diego. If you do not know who Diego is, um, definitely some great piece of Ireland uh, folklore. Now, Diego is pretty much the like a female version of Dracula, kind of, I guess, inspired Brand Brokers uh, Dracula. But, um, it's a it's a really good folklore, really good folklore. But she's also known, you may know her as the Red Blood Sucker. But now you've probably heard of the saying, "Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned." No one wants to be on the receiving end of one of those. People native to our beloved Ireland are uh, probably familiar with the legend of Diego. One of the most tragic and frightening cases of a woman scorned. Her legend is still whispered at grave sites. Rocks are still placed over graves in small towns and hamlets because of her. She is a vampire. Not the first, not the last, but threads of her grim tale have been swun into the fabric of a vampire myth. Perhaps even into the most legendary of all, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, there's no confirmed link, you know, but the legend of Count Dracula might have, in some small way, stemmed from the myth of Diego, which was written in 1897 by Abraham Bram Stoker and born and raised Irishman. But the story goes, as natives of folklore steeped, Ireland in the early to mid-1800s, survivors of the Irish potato famine um, I simply must believe that not only was the legend of Diego known to the Strokers, Strokers, to the Stokers, but that fragment of her love, no matter how small, was imprinted into the pages of Dracula. Diego, meaning red blood sucker in Irish, was not the name of a poor girl in life, in life of 2,000 years ago, but she was a legendary beauty with blood red lips and pale blonde hair. Her true name has been lost for ages. 
overshadowed instead of by the things you became. Men traveled far and wide. And of course, as fate would have it, his sweet-natured girl fell in love with a local peasant. His name, too, has been forgotten and swallowed by legend. He was a true match for her in all things, handsome, kind-hearted, but lacking in the one that meant the most to their father's maiden's cruel father. Money. Without money, there was no statue in the community, and without stature, there would be no security for the family. That love match would never be allowed to happen. Instead, the father gave his child to a vastly older, vastly crueler man, all to secure a name and fortune for the family. Dad sounded like a sweet, swell guy. While the father revealed his newly acquired riches, he gave a thought to his poor daughter. She daily suffered terrible mental and physical abuse at the hands of her new husband, the chieftain. His particular pleasure was found in drawing blood from her, watching as the deep crimson welled up on her soft porcelain skin. When she was not being abused, she was kept locked away in a tower cell so that only her husband could see her, touch her, bleed her. And she waited in vain for that day that her former love, the kind peasant boy, would somehow rescue her. That hope kept her alive for many months. Until one day, she realized there was no hope. No one would come for her. So she saved herself the only way she knew how. She committed suicide and is believed but secretly disposing of the scraps of the food left for each day. It was a slow and no doubt painful death. She is buried in a small churchyard near Strongbow's Tea, Strongbow's Tree, in the court of Waterford, southeast Ireland. Some say the months of abuse have broken and twisted her kind spirit, and before she finally breathed her last, she renounced God and vowed a terrible vengeance. Now, for the devout, souls of those who commit suicide are never at rest. Regardless, they are, in fact, doomed to walk forever in torment. Now, long before this sad tale, folklore in Ireland dictated that you should pile stones on the graves of the newly dead to prevent them from rising again. Perhaps it was out of sadness and guilt that the townspeople did not pile the stones on her grave that first night. Perhaps they remember the kind and beautiful soul she was and thought she suffered enough persecution. After all, none of them had come to her rescue, despite the fact they knew her husband was a monster of a man, and none of them have never seen her again after the day of their marriage. But alas, they were remembering the person she was, not the creature she became. Her undead corpse rose from the earth that very night she was buried driven by the half-remembered human visions of her own blood welling on her skin, thirsting for revenge, thirsting for blood in return. She rose that night as the, as the Diegdu, the red blood drinker, and thus her legend was born. She steals blood from children, from the innocent, and especially from young men, calling them with a strange, haunting siren song that invades their sleep. She lures them out into the night with her tempting them to follow her to her grave. Punishing them as she was punished. 
keeping them with her as she herself was kept. Those who go missing, those taken mysteriously ill, those children who die inexplicably, are all attributed to the cursed, wandering, and insatiable Diegdu. As children, we imprint on a number of experiences. Who's to say that young Bram wasn't, in fact, influenced by his childhood memories of uh, outlandish and bizarre Irish folklore and stories, dark, imaginative stories, told him while in the fog of childhood illness? After all, all those Irish folklore tales did blend so well with the European folklore of Nesferato and Vlad the Impaler. Imp Layler. Now this is an, uh, you know, from Bram Stoker, and you can judge this for yourself, okay? And see if if uh, Dracula was indeed maybe inspired by Diego. I was not alone. The room was the same, unchanged in my way since I came into it. I could see along the floor in the brilliant moonlight my own footsteps marked where I had disturbed the long accumulation of dust. In the moonlight, opposite me were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them. They threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time and then whispered together. Two were dark and had high noses like the Count and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as it can be, with great masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. It seemed somehow to know her face, and know it the connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against a ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, though. Some longing, and at the same time, some deadly fear. I felt my heart was wicked, burning desire, that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down, but lest someday it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed. Such a silvery musical laugh. But as hard as that sound never could have come through the softness of human lips, it was like an intolerable tingling sweetness of water glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head, and the other two urged her on. I lay quiet, looking out from under my eyelashes in agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over, till, bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey sweet, and the sense the same tingling to the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlining the sweet, a bitter of offensiveness, as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness with, uh, which was both thrilling and repulsive. 
As she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed to fasten onto my throat. Then she paused. I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips. I could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle as one's flesh does when the hand that is tickle approaches nearer and nearer. I could feel the soft shivering touch of the lips on the super sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents on two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in ecstasy and waited, waited with a beating heart. But at that instant, another sensation swept through me as lightning. It was conscious as the presence of the Count and of his being lapped in a storm of fury. As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw her strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman and with a giant power draw it back. The blue eyes transform with fury, the white teeth chomp, chomping with rage, and fair cheeks blazing red with passion. But the Count, never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them were lured as the flames of hell fire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were hard light drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose seemed like a heavy bar of white hot metal. With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him, then motioned to the others as they, if he was beating them back. It was the same gesture that I had seen used to the wolves, in a voice which, though low and almost in whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring in the room as he said, How dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast your eyes on him when I have forbidden it? Back, I tell you all. This man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him, or you will have to deal with me. The fair girl with the laugh turned to answer him. You yourself never loved. You yourself love. You never love. On the other woman joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fines. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well, now I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go. Go, I must awaken him, for there is work to be done. That was from Bram Stroker. That's from Dracula. And you can see easily how this could have been influenced by Diego and the legend of Diego. And, uh, you know, his age growing up with hearing folktale like that. Now, I think it's time to move on. You, you already know. But it's time for, uh, Cryptid of the Week. Cryptid of the Week. 
Now, I'm not going to lie to you. This cryptid of the week, <laughs> if you just, when you got time after this, you need to Google up what I'm telling you and look at the pictures of this thing. If I seen this thing, I mean, it would scare me way more than Bigfoot or any other cryptid I've heard thus far. The cryptid is Sheep Squatch, also known as the White Thing. It's a woolly, harried cryptid reported across numerous counties in West Virginia, predominantly within the southwestern region of the state. The counties with the most sightings are Boone, Kanawha, Putnam, and Mason, with a surge in sightings taking place in Boone County during the mid-1990s. It was described as being a quad rip grouped about the size of a bear with the entirety of white wool-like fur. It has a long and pointed head, similar to a dog, with a long saber-like teeth and single pint set of horns, not uh, dismiliar from those found from a young goat. Its four limbs end in paw-like hands, similar to those of raccoons, but larger. Why its tail is long and hairless, like that of a possum, it is uh, known to smell like sulfur, which has been attributed through folklore to the, be the beast born within the TNT area in Mason County, like one of the Mothman theories, which we will definitely do a grift of the week on. <clears throat> but, though that's not likely, instead maybe musk scent glands similar to those found in many species in the order Canivrior such as weasels and skunks. <clears throat> now, some of the sightings. In 1994, a former Navy seaman stated having witnessed the beast breaking through the forest. And I remember breaking through the forest, not walking through like Bigfoot. But the, uh, the white thing breached the brush line and knelt to drink from the creek. Here it drank for a few minutes before crossing the creek, continuing toward the nearby road. The witness stated that they observed the animal for a while before it moved on to surrounding brush. Within the same year, two children observed the creature while playing in their yard within Boone County. What they reported have observing like a large white bear, yet in this case it stood up on its hind legs, making it over six feet tall. Presumably it did so in a manner similar to beasts trying to observe as opposed to walking. Now, startled by the children, the beast ran off through the forest, breaking medium-sized limbs off the trees in its path. In 1995, the creature was next spotted a year later, this time involving a car. A couple driving through Boone County observed a large white beast sitting in the ditch alongside the roadway. As many curious passerbyers might do in such a situation, they stopped their car to get a better look. They came to describe this creature again as mostly similar to the earlier descriptions, yet they added the creature had four eyes. Is it wearing glasses or... No, sorry. Stupid joke. <clears throat> in stark contrast to the last sighting where the sheep squatch fled the scene, the creature leaped out of the ditch and started to attack the car. Frightened by the attack, the couple drove off quickly and once they arrived back home, noticed large scratches on the side when the beast had attacked. 
Now, in 1999, another incident involved a couple of campers who were in the forest at night, again in Boone County, around a bonfire. They eventually heard an animal snorting and scuffling around the camp in a manner similar to an aggravated beaver. I was going to think about, like, you know, a deer in heat, but whatever, you know, rut season. Um, though it did not come into the light of the campfire immediately. All of a sudden, the sheep squatch suddenly charged out the darkness at the campers. Now, reacting quickly, they jumped and ran back to the house, all the while being pursued by the sheep squatch. Giving chase, though, is a natural reaction of a predator. When a creature flees, its initial attack could have simply been a mock charge. Now, the white thing stopped at the edge of the forest when they crossed it and let out a terrible scream. Then it turned around and headed back into the woods. The next morning, the campers returned to their campsite and trail home, finding it to be torn up. They referred to it as like someone had tilted it up for gardening. Now, a few years, well, many years down the road, I'm sure it's probably almost forgotten at this point. In 2015, in Fox Run, Virginia, the beast was spotted. And once again, the forests of the Appalachia. The creature was spotted close to midnight by six campers, spending the night in the dense woods. The beast was reportedly eight to nine feet tall, with the shoulder length between four to five feet. One of the campers first saw the beast at the top of a nearby hill in a crouching position. Then it stood up and he alerted the other campers. Then it started running down the steep hill toward the campers. God. That, that's like a horror movie. But they were separated by the river that was flowing through. They looked in horror as they searched for a way to cross, with no other option, began to wade through the river. It finally came out of the water, and the campers reported that it appeared like a bipedal dog in the chest, with its fur wet from the river crossing. Then a loud gut-based screech was heard about two miles off from where they were. Then the sheep squatch looked up in shock, just high enough so the moonlight was in its face. And then the campers looked on his fear as let out a pathetic whimper, then in a sprint ran into the opposite direction of that noise. The campers quickly packed and left, which huh, anybody would, then reported it to the locals fearing that if authorities were informed they would be ridiculed. The identity of the campers is unknown. As of March 2016. Wow. <clears throat> you know. That's all I gotta say. Sheep Squatch. If, like I'm telling you about now. And you're like. Oh that's pretty creepy. No no no. Look at what it looks like. And then put yourself in that situation. It's freaking terrifying. Now. From cryptid to just a, this right here is probably one of the most known um, UFO abduction stories ever. We're gonna dip into it now. If this was real, I don't know. Now you gotta keep in mind, you know, that these abduction stories, like especially the one about the reed, it is, um, you know. They recover the people's story through the help of hypno hypnosis. 
you know, I don't know. It's, eh. And still, you know, hypnosis is definitely not a, you know, um, authenticated way, you know, because it could very easily be manipulated by the, by the doctor, but, or the, you know, the guy that's sitting there. Anyways, we're going to be talking about Betty and Barney Hill's alien abduction story. Now, is it, cha- is it chasing us? That thought occurred through Betty and Barney Hill's minds as they drove down the empty, winding country road in New Hampshire's White Mountains. It was September night in 1961. They hadn't seen a car for miles, and a strange light in the sky seemed to follow them. When they finally got home to Portsmouth at dawn, they were far from relieved. They felt dirty. Their watches stopped working. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed, and Betty's dress was ripped. There were uh, two hours of the drive that neither one of them could remember. What had happened? With the help of a psychiatrist, the quiet couple eventually revealed a startling story. Gray beings with large eyes had walked them into a metallic disc as wide, Betty said, as her house was long. Once inside, the beings examined the couple and erased their memories. Their experience would kick off an Air Force inquiry, part of the Secretive Initiative Project Blue Book, that investigated UFO sightings across the country. The incident would also become the first ever widely publicized alien abduction account and shape how stories like it were told and understood from then on. Debate continues, though, as to whether the husband and wife were liars, uh, crackpots, or simply sleep-deprived people who later recovered seriously scrambled memories. The Hills Road trip was a spontaneous, a well-earned break Barney decided the couple needed, as explained in The uh, Journey, a 1966 book that collaborated on with author John G. Fuller. And it was The Interrupted Journey. Barney uh, would have worked a grueling, grueling night shift at the post office, driving 60 miles each way. Betty's job handling state child welfare cases was no easier. The little free time this uh, biracial couple had was devoted to their church and activities related to the civil rights movement. After 16 months of marriage, Betty and Barney, Barney, Barney saw that this trip through Montreal and Niagara Falls as their delayed honeymoon. They left so impulsively they had no time to go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. They got in their car with less than $70 in their pockets. On the last night of their three-day trip, they, the tired couple snipped coffee. Snipped. The tired couple sipped coffee in a Vermont dinner diner to recharge before driving back. I hope I can read a little bit better from here on out. Barney figured if they pushed through, they could beat the wind and rains from approaching hurricane. They left the diner around 10 p.m. Estimating they could reach their red-framed house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. at the latest. Now, as they drove, strange light in the sky gave another reason to hurry. 
At first it looked like a falling star, but grew larger and brighter with each mile. Barney, an avid plane watcher and World War II vet, was sure they had nothing to worry about. It's just a satellite, he assured Betty. It probably went off course. The light seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curving mountain road. The light zigged and zagged, ducking past the moon and behind trees of the mountain ridges, only to reappear moments later. Sometimes it seems to move forward, then in a game of cat and mouse. It had to be an illusion, they thought. Maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light, too, was moving. Curiosity overcame them, and the couple pulled over road stops and picnic turnouts to get a closer look. Through binoculars, by binoculars, through binoculars, Betty saw that the white light was really an object spinning in the air. Barney! She told her husband, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you've been completely ridiculous. He knew she was right. I mean, Barney had an IQ of 140, noted Fuller in his book. Barney was uh, also a pragmatic man who wouldn't give flying saucers a second thought. Remembering his niece, Kathleen Martin, in her work captured the Betty and Barney Hill experience. The night was too quiet for a helicopter, commercial plane, or even military jet with a hotshot pilot. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What was the light, and why was it toying with us? About 70 miles past the diner, the object hovered just above the treetops, approximately 100 feet above them. Barney abruptly stopped the car, keeping the engine running. He shoved a handgun he'd hidden beneath the seat into his pocket, and rushed into a dark field, leaving Betty in the car. What he saw was big as a jet, but as round and flat as a pancake. My God, what is that thing? He recalled thinking, this can't be real. Behind rows of windows, gray uniformed beings seemed to look at them, Barney recalled. He tried to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow couldn't. A voice told him not to put down his binoculars. He had a startling thought. We are about to be captured. Yelling hysterically, he ran back to the car and barreled down the road as Betty tracked the craft. Now, craning her head outside of the car window without explanation, loud rhythmic beeps sounded from the car's trunk. The couple felt instantly drowsy and lost consciousness. Back home in Portsmouth, they tried to make sense of that night. Barney felt compelled to examine his body's lower half. Both seem aware of a puzzling presence. In the weeks and months after, Betty, an avid reader, checked out books from the library discovering the Civilian UFO Group, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. She also reported the sighting to the Air Force, worried about uh, radiation. In coming years, with Betty suffering from disturbing dreams and Barney developing an ulcer and anxiety, the couple sought mental help. The two met with Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in hypnosis, a mainstream technique at that time. Through the months of weekly sessions, Simon helped the couple piece together what they think had happened. A vessel had landed on the hill's car, putting them to sleep. Afterward, gray beings walked them up a long ramp into the spacecraft. Once inside, the hills were separated. 
taking turns in an examination room that had curved walls and large light hanging from the ceiling. Each was asked to climb up a metal table. The table was so short, Barney legs hung over the side. During the examinations, the beings removed Betty and Barney's clothes, plucked strands of their hair, took clippings of their nails, and scrapped their skin. Scraped their skin. Each sample was placed on a clear material, not unlike glass slide. Needles connected to long wires probed their heads, arms, legs, and spines. One large needle, around four to six inches long, was inserted into Betty's belly. This pregnancy test left her twisting in pain. Throughout a, throughout, a being of Barney and Betty called the leader watched from the side. After Betty's examination ended, the, the beings rushed back to the room excited. They discovered that Barney's teeth could be removed. Betty laughed and explained that Barney had dentures, a fact of human aging the beings struggled to understand. Later alone with the leader, Betty asked where the craft had flown, admitting she knew a little of the universe. The being joked with her, as saying, If you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in telling you where I am. Later, under hypnosis, she drew a star map shown to her on the ship. In 1965, the Hill story was picked up by the Boston newspaper. After that, everything changed. The quiet couple story became the subject of a best-selling book and a movie starring James Earl Jones. The, out, the upstanding civil servants had become celebrity abductees. The Hills weren't the first to spot a UFO or even to report an abduction, but their story did capture the nation's imagination and was so widely publicized. It was helped shape how we talk about alien encounters and abductions today. Now, before the Hills story... Alien encounters were friendly, according to Christopher Bader, a professor of sociology at California's Chapman University. Some aliens even lived on Earth and commuted back on weekends. But once the Hill story became better known, induction counts shared certain characteristics, such as medical examinations and missing time. Aliens with large heads and big eyes, dubbed grays, in UFO circles became a classic sci-fi staples in personal accounts and pop culture, close encounters of the third kind, and shows like The X-Files. The Hill story and those that came after helped pave the way of new understanding of human experience. Richard J. McNally, a Harvard psychologist, put this way, The alien abduction phenomenon, in my opinion, shows how sincere, non-psychotic individuals can develop beliefs about and false memories of incredible experiences that never happen. Experts of all stripes have tried to explain why intelligent, otherwise mentally stable people came forward with those experiences. Many psychologists say sleep paralysis and hallucinations played a role. Leading questions during hypnosis, the main way most abductees unlock their stories, could also have been a factor. Now, those who report abduction might also see the world differently. According to research, one of the strongest predictors of false recall is vivid imagination. This group scores high in magical ideation and is more likely to believe in ghosts and tarot readings, according to McNally. Some believe the Hill story was simply a myth in the making with the supernatural meetings, vulnerable protagonists, and otherworldly journeys. 
that are often the hallmarks of legend. Many point to the stress of being an interracial couple living in Panama predominantly white state in turbulent area air. The year of the hypnosis, 1964, was marked by Cold War tensions, civil war unrest, with numerous urban riots erupting that summer. You have a biracial couple at a time where obviously it was not easy to be a biracial couple, says Bader. Look what those aliens were, a mixture of black and white. I find that very meaningful. Abductee stories depend on first-hand accounts. The most vulnerable form of evidence. Memories can be distorted by stress and distraction or even manufactured. When a false memory is in place, psychologists say the brain works to fill in the details. Psychologist Michael Sherman points to the patternicity, the tendency to see patterns even when none exist, helping us to see faces and clouds or assume that one event caused another. The NICAP scientific advisor cross-examined the couple and found their accounts credible. The Air Force's Project Blue Book would ultimately dismiss the story, determining that the unexplained crash could be explained by natural causes, hinting that the people hadn't seen a spacecraft but only the plane Jupiter. For his part, psychiatrist Simon never felt the hills that made up their story. He concluded Betty had dreamed the abduction and Barney had absorbed her story especially since many of the most vivid details match descriptions of dreams that he had jotted down after the event. I believe implicity, Im, Im, implicitly, implicitly in the honesty of these people, he said on a 70s radio program. And of course, another explanation is always possible, is that the abduction actually occurred. The hills stuck by their story despite years of skeptics and tractors, like many abductees, the couple never felt false memory or sleep paralysis explained what they experienced. Now, Betty became a known voice in UFO research and claimed she was visited multiple times in the decades to follow. And I, I like I said, I find that to be a really great story. A really great um, encounter. Because you got two people who are completely sane, who are overachievers, who are old war vet, you name it. And, uh, you know, they would hate to be scrutinized, but they they felt obligated to say it. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't really believe in uh, hypnosis. The only reason why I say that is because sometimes the psychiatrist will put in, you know, push toward certain things and uh, to make you say certain things. So I don't believe in that. I'd rather just hear the story without the hypnosis. Because hypnosis doesn't give me no authentication. Alright. Now hopefully we're moving on to the creepypasta section now. And I'm hoping the other story we read last week was Grandma's Dentures. And it was actually just garbage. Um, didn't really understand why um, she was on all fours. I'm doing me wrong. That's terrifying. But how he weirdly kept it and heard him chattering when he was sleeping years down the road. I mean, it's creepy. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. It's creepy and weird. I'll give you that. Scary, no. Now, like I say on every one, because when I read these creepy pastas, it is new for you and I. So this is all live reaction. I don't know how it's going to end. Hopefully good. Now, written by Simon Simonian. 
got an 8.46 out of 10 from 192 votes. Eternal Woman. Cue. Go ahead and cue that beautiful music. Boom. In the middle of the dazed garden stands this four-story cadaver of a building. Years ago, it was home to many residents, a couple of families, and a few students and some retirees. Now the house is nothing more than a decrepit panorama for black clouds. With toad flax spreads through the splintered masonry, cover its windows with ladylike fingers. Some branches diffuse through the cracks in the windows, other beck upwards across the roof tiles, dangling on the other side like marinettes, ornamenting, ornamenting this sober palette of ossified colors. The house has lulled itself to sleep with the memories of its past, not even disturbed by thuds of dry acorns on the cracked cemented path. Time has stopped here. Every now and then, a curious passerby pressed her foreheads against the rusty gates of the garden, desperately squinting through the mist. None dare to climb over and enter. You too have been passing by, peeking through the gates, wondering about the empty garden in the house. And like everyone else, you too never dare to enter. Until now. With your face pressed against the gates, you notice something in one of the second floor windows. It's a speck of light, a really tiny one. You cup your hands and squint through the mist, and there it is again. What is that all about, you wonder? After all, the house has been abandoned for 30 years now, and to your knowledge, no one has ever set foot inside since. That's when the curiosity finally prevails over your apprehension and common sense, and so you make that decision. You look around and make sure no one is watching you. You climb on top of the gate, carefully making your way above its gothic serration, then jump seven feet down on the cemented path of the garden. The light in the window still shimmers, flashing its gaze like a beacon from an abandoned lighthouse. Slowly, you make your way through the forked path through the garden towards the house. Your steps are quiet and soft, as if you're trying not to wake a sleeping banshee. You pass by the fountain bench, noticing some random penchants of the past, a book that must have been left by a scatterbrained resident, a gardener glove tucked between moldy pebbles, a ghastly mist disperses as you reach the entrance of the house. You stomp your feet to shake juniper needles off your shoes, and that's when you hear it, the house cringing in its sleep. As you put your foot on the first chair, you can feel it breathe faster and shift eyelids side to side. It must be finally noticing it must be finally noticing your presence. Second stare. The house no longer reacts to squeaks, but only shivers when it's my rids of entangled spider webs. Like a com- comatose patient, it momentarily opens its eyes, gapes around with multiple eye sockets, and then falls back into a vegetative slumber. One flight of stairs and the door to your left and the one you need. It's not locked, you try to push, but after a few tries, the door finally huffs and gives in. Swarms of microscopic dust specks perform around you in all directions before fading from sight, beckoning you, the intruder, to enter the sanctuary presided by darkness. 
You hesitate, but just step in. You light a match, and molecules of light bounce off the walls, revealing the long corridor, seemingly longer than the building itself. How? Oh, wait. There's another door to your left. You try the knob, but it's locked. Next to the door, you notice a coat rack with nothing on it, but a little headscarf. Then, to your right, you see what looks like a kitchen with a bathroom pod and piles of some debris. Don't go in there. Just keep on walking straight. The corridor soon ends, and you come face to face with a wide set of double doors. This time you open them with ease. Welcome to the living room. Whatever sunlight penetrates through the trapped window is not enough for you to see everything. You light another match and look around. You see rows of books with eroded titles stacking on shelves. And further down, an open piano looking like a smiling with missing front teeth. Then a carcass of what once was a desk with random wood planks covering its frame. A sooty glass vase. An armchair facing the other way. Wait, you think you see something or someone sitting in an armchair? You hold your breath. Who's there, you whisper. Taking cautious sideways steps, you walk around maintaining a distance of a few feet between yourself and the figure in the armchair. You can hear your own heart pounding against your chest cage. Trickles of sweat run down your brows, and you don't notice the match burning in your fingertips. You twitch and flick your finger. You pick your last match. Yes, only one left in the matchbox. You nervously rub it against the side of your matchbox three or four times until it finally draws aerial hues in the air. As the a, as a light once again illuminates in that living room, you find yourself stranding, standing right in front of that someone or something. That someone is still sitting on that armchair. Someone is looking right at you. That someone is me. Whoa. Okay, mind blown. I am a girl about six or seven years old. I live here. Those are my books, and that vase belongs to me. I tried learning piano once, but only to be driven away by its constant throaty mocking of my poor skills. I gave up now that piano is nothing but a quiet observant to my daily routine. Speaking of routine, it consists of sitting in this old armchair, leaning my palms on the armrest, swooning in and out of existence. My whole existence is in waiting. What do I wait for? I wait for her. The elderly woman who lives in the other room, I wait for her to call upon me. And so I sit and stare at the dim window looking from the rear side of the building. There are trees that grow there and from time to time I see blotchy specks of sunlight slicing through the evergreen maze of conifers. conifers. Other than that, nothing is happening. No visitors, no occasional intruders, only my imagination, including you. <clears throat> Even cre- evening creeps in, drawing strange gallows on the ceiling. When it gets darker, I hear thousands of voices oscillating through the corridor in the room in the piano in the armchair the voices cognizant of my presence intensify like a pendulum in reverse motion calling me by my name there these are the voices of the yore of places and sounds and smells 
names long forgotten, eclipsing slowly like smoldering glass. His quiet peace is only disturbed by the clamor of dripping faucet in the kitchen every hour and pacing of the elderly woman in the adjacent room. She paces, paces from one another to another. I dare not enter the room, but until she calls me. And that's when I suddenly hear it. First, in like a distance, ah, there it is again, this time a bit more pronounced. I move towards the door of my sanctuary in my living room. I stand by the doorstep, and I hear it again, this time much clearer. Child, this cannot be a mistake. It's her. Goodbye, piano. Goodbye, armchair. Goodbye, books. I float down the corridor, gently caressing the ceiling of my chair as I come closer to the bedroom. The voice resonates with overlapping echoes, like this. Chi-chi-chi. A doormat, a dormant echoes retort to her in their particular, uh, unison. The door to her bedroom is locked, but it's locked for me. I open and I float into her room, hovering by the floor like an apparition. Apparition. Faint light from lanterns saturated on a nightstand. It's enough to only uncover a few feet of the room, and one may wonder that if this is the same light that beacons through the window, inviting adventurous intruders. As I enter the old woman's house, I gaze through the, the uh, sumptuously furnished room, down the uh, wall tapestry with arching necks of draped chandelers. It's never been here before in my child. Curiosity takes over. Below the shuttered uh, decorations of oval covering, I notice old photographs hung on manifold nooks. The aura above the lantern gives some uh, unwanted color to the otherwise black and white photographs. I notice sallow inscriptions in the corner of each photograph. I try to read the first, but I hear a voice reading it for me. Jacob A.F. Haynes. Haynes. It's turned to the far corner of the room, and where the voice came from, it must be her. The elderly woman in the, sitting in the armchair in the dark corner of the room. Jacob F. Haynes says the voice again. That's the name of a photographer, the person who took that photo. The first photographer, the photograph on the right was taken in March of 1932. Me and my brother Henry, the very year he died. We grew up in March's larger house by the Demar Gardens off Morgan Street. A big patio with, well, there's that patio in, the, in that photograph to the left. My name is Aridan, she says. I was the only nine when Henry died. She pauses to repel the sudden onslaught of painful memories, then takes a deep breath and slowly goes on. Henry, my brother was always an ill boy, but before the Great Depression hit, it was not something we worried about. Father's business was blooming, and we had access to best specialists, and we had enough money for expensive prescriptions. But then, the Great Depression came, and the business that we owned slowly, slowly but surely went up in smokes. The photograph in the upper left, yes, that one, it's my father in front of our old house. We saw it the next day, and I cried. So did Mother, even when she tried to soothe me. That is we. That is when we moved here, to the second floor apartment in this residential, residential building. This is my room, mine and Henry's. 
He slept right there, exactly the same point where these photographs are. While we tried to make ends meet, his disease only got worse. Doctors gave him a medical name, Polio. Other doctors gave a secondary nickname, Plague of the Century, and they told my father that Henry had to be hospitalized. Henry died on Christmas Day. His body, weakened from the numerous childhood illness, could not be uh, withstood by any other challenge. I knew he was lucky. Others like him that I saw in the hospital lived on. Children of his age, some older and some younger, they were being placed in wooden boxes where nurses simulated their lungs to breathe. They called it iron lungs, and it never went through that. He was lucky. He died peacefully on silent night. Emotions must have combined through her throat, weakening tongue muscles for a moment, but she knows she was very little time left. And her words like columns of blind men meter mend her towards me, never breaking performance. That photograph in the middle of me is my mother in 1944 in the train station. A few days after we received the Western Union telegram for the uh, adjutant gen- general, who uh, was uh, deeply saddened to inform us that my father, who previously reported missing in action, was killed in Holland. The day after we received the death telegram, I informed my brother that I was joining the military. She did not try to dissuade me. I remember her look, like an abyss staring back at you. We stood at the train station and posed for one final photo for 30 seconds. That photo right there. And then I was off the train to the naval base in Newfoundland. Then across the Atlantic to trail on the battlegrounds where my father fought once. Military nurse, nurse, army nurse corps, blue khaki olive uniforms. Then the war was over. The photograph below, that's me in Paris, 1945, late spring. Flowers that uh, used to sell only on Rue de Lyon. Rue de Lyon. His door with a cowbell ring that made me laugh. I could hear it. The protrusive stench of the nearby canals, I can smell it. The loaves he baked for me when with shelled peas, he called it poise pain. I can taste it. Another way to look at me. When I came by their family bakery and rung the cowbell and asked me for another poise pan and a secret signal that only one he and I shared. Oh yeah. The clove were met under the pillows of lilac and my name that he pronounced so funny, Agi Adna. It made me smile, the letters we wrote to each other with those strange curves and that would put above vowels that made his handwriting so special. And then our dreams, our funny dreams that whirled in the air, tap danced on the monastery towers before disappearing in the lagoon sky. She looks at the tall clock at the other side of the room. It doesn't work. She knows that by old reflexes and it's hard to break. She coughs and hollow echoes play parrot with her. In 1947, the photograph on the top right makes me make me back in this apartment after three years of being away. Like a people thrown, pebble thrown in the air, I came, to, came back to say goodbye to mother. That tumor they had found in her skull was supposed to keep her alive for only one month. 
enough for me to come back and take her down a rest. She lived about two hours. She lived for two years, sorry. They were off by their one month. It was just the two of us in the apartment, me and her tumor. We shared our days in the room, sometimes walking down stairs and glistening under the fountain in the garden. Me reading, tumor nodding and asking me for release. I refused to grab at one. Tumor understood and obeyed. I spoke to the empathy in her eyes and to the tumor. The fountain water would occasionally splash dead mosquitoes on her gray dress. I wiped them. From time, she cried to talk. That sounded only like croaking, followed by gasping, coughing, and drooling. My one mouth returned home and turned into years, which then turned to a lifetime. I stayed by her side all the time and stayed uh, when she passed on, and I stayed thereafter. In 1959, the photograph right there, yes, oily and yellow, the latest photograph of me, the latest photograph of this building, and why it was still alive. A few years before the... Uh, lost my spot there imagine that right a few years before that i managed to buy this building from previous owners for a very cheap price i wonder why he bought it for cheap they wanted to sell it quickly and frankly no one's interested in buying an old decrepit house no one but me little by little all residents moved out you can see the house in the background in that photograph only our window is lit others dark like an eternal pendulum i remain the sole beating heart of this house Hollow echoes in the room cough harder, turning the mortar-bound space into a, um, a compilation of sibilating blasts. She plays parrot with them. I'm sensing the end. Child, come closer. 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 She is lifting the sat satin veil off her face and for a moment stares into the emptiness of the room with... Memory scrolling up like coils of white smoke, then drifting towards me. I catch them all, gliding right above her. I am abiding by her memories. I am an infant popping soap bubbles. Her last thoughts of pulsating like conclusions, uh, concluding baritone of the tall clock, pushing it to its final slow motion ticks. I can hear her. It plays with musical notes on her face. Drops between waves onto the parched shells of her lips, toying with the crest of her wrinkles. Then, gyrus up, upwards with um, hissing sighs. I come, I come closer, 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 until my curls became hers, until my young body and hers become one. Her voice, her face, the empty empathy in her eyes turns into a childish curiosity. Blooming flowers tessellate the raptured skin like a warm spring rain after a dry winter. The world is new again. The house takes its last breath and dies. The elderly woman's head rests on the armchair. They die together, and they speak of light slowly floats out of her chest towards me. I reach out and I caught it. The speck of light, the same one that you, the intruder, saw moments ago behind the gate. The same light that ignited your curiosity made you climb over the gate through the misty garden, down the forking path to reconsider upstairs apartment, apartment through the corridor to this very room, only to find in here, nothing in here. 
but then I will be already gone. I will have already bid my farewell to the dead house and parted with the garden and the gates and the needle jump junipers and the uh, derelict fountain. I am outside the gates now. I strongly merely I stride merrily down the street to the market square on my way to the new life. I am ready to live again. I am alive. Which uh I mean it ended up being a good story. Overall it was really good. I liked it. Um it was a little confusing here and there, and it wasn't really creepy. But give or take, we'll get some good ones. Now, with further ado, we move on. This this movie. Okay. Now, a group of old college friends reunite for a trip to a forest in Sweden, northern Europe, but encounter a menacing presence there stalking them. Um, it uh, it's on Netflix, by the way. Came out in twenty seventeen. They give it a 6.3 out of 10 from 92,000 views. Um, it's going to have actors in it that you may have seen from other... Uh, Michael, I'm not saying B-movie, but like you may have seen... Uh, I've, seen I've seen... I think it was Shaun of the Dead. I've seen one of them. Not the main guy. Um, th- maybe. I could be wrong, but it looks like him. Um, the jock guy, or one of the guys. Anyways, the movie... Is called the ritual. Um, I say about everybody listening to this right now, if you go watch the ritual. It is good. It's suspenseful. You don't see what's coming the whole time until the very end kind of situation. But to me, it plays out in my mind like the woman in black. The whole time you're freaked out. I mean, there's a, don't get me wrong, there's a few things in it, like Blair Witch style, that, that do freak you out. Don't get me wrong. It is a good movie. The Ritual. It's on Netflix. And, uh, it all comes, you know, these, these four men, um, I think there's four. I mean, there was another one, but I can't tell you what happened to him in the very beginning is why there's one less. But, um... The, what it is is the complainer of the group. Um, the one's always nagging. You'll uh, you'll know who it is. He's always nagging. My feet hurt. My, my blah blah blah. Well, anyways, he trips awkwardly, which is kind of funny. But he hurt his leg, and now he's gimping. And uh, well, they all agreed, kinda, um, that they're going to cut through this big, thick, luscious forest. Um, because they can get back to their hotel or their lodge quicker. You know, if they if they go around this big, thick uh, structure of trees, um, then it's going to take them longer. And with, you know, the guy that complains a lot who gets hurt, um, you know, he's like, no, let's go through, let's cut through. You know, I can't keep walking on this bum leg right now. And they all kind of have it toward, you'll know the guy, because he'll be with the other guy gets, I'll tell you. In the very, very beginning, um, there's a tra I'm not going to tell you exactly, but there's a tragedy that happens with one of the guys. And um, the guy's in it the whole time, um, just really depressed the whole time in the very beginning, 
because he feel like it's his fault he didn't step up well everybody else kind of felt that way too about him but the, the guy that nags and starts crap within the friend group he's the one that kind of comes out and says well you should have done this you know because they kind of you know it's just it's a really good movie um great folklore involved in this creature um personally they did the same thing for me in the woman in black they try to make it too scary looking and to me it looked stupid i would just rather it have been nothing at all to be honest but that's i mean it might scare you guys uh whoever's listening um like i said it's it's i like it uh the ending has a very good twist to it um like i said there's some blair witch project uh events but I definitely uh, recommend for you to watch. It's called The Ritual. Totally go watch it. It's on Netflix. Um, free, of course. But totally, totally good movie. Uh, under the radar movie, I think. But uh, I don't want to give too much you know, away, away with it. It's got a 74% Rotten Tomatoes, 57% uh, Metacritic. Like I said, uh, IMDb gives it a 6.3 out of 10. But it is an hour and 34 minutes, and it is, like I said, on Netflix. But you, you'll like it. I mean, the audience rating from Google, anyway, um, 3.9 out of 5. You know, one of the things says, The Ritual is a, a mature, well-made horror movie with lots of spine-chilling sound effects and music. Disturbing imagery. Um, and frightening. Lovecraftian horror. The story is very practical. Well crafted with some quite thought provoking messages. Grimly intriguing mythology on display. The characters are very well acted. Though not all of them are well developed. They all come off as real. Like people who are easy to root for. The horror elements can also... Um, be understated with the film being perhaps Netflix's most terrifying film to date the monster is never overly shown yes I will agree that's the good part and effectively ghastly whenever it does appear on screen with a horrifyingly unique design that's unlike the horror genre has ever seen before the entire film has highlighted a roar of suspense that never dies down and there are many truly chilling shocks to be found throughout the film in fact it's so frightening that you may never want to go camping in the woods again after watching it. Overall, the ritual is an underrated, deeply unnerving horror story that should be given a watch by any horror fan. And that was by James five months ago. I will agree with what James says. Um, I didn't really care for the monster that much in the end. It's freaky. I will say it's very unique. But I get more... I'm the kind of person that gets more freaked out by... Wondering what it could be and not being able to see it yet than I am once I see it. Because I start to critique it a lot after I see it. But uh, anyways, um, there's a... There's, oh, thinking about it, I'm going to rewatch it again. I've watched I think two, uh, three, four times already. I usually watch it a lot during Halloween, of course. Um, but it's... There's a few times in that it's downright chilling. Like if you put yourself in a situation, it would suck. But 
that's all we have today um, for or for this week's podcast. And uh, if you have any suggestions or any movies you want to hear or folklore, UFOs, uh, certain creepypasta, whatever it might be, suggest it, comment it, and uh, follow me on Twitter. The link's always in the bio, but it is at Boo Review Pod if you want to search it versus click the link in the bio. And, you know, like I said, newer podcasts I've started. If you would, you know, a five-star review or any review, um, preferably a five-star, of course, <clears throat> but um, would be greatly appreciated if you feel inclined to. Um, shows me where I'm at, and it helps the podcast out. But uh, till next time, just kind of be careful out there, because everything I ever read has a grain of truth to it.